Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's a funny thing. I have spent a lot of time in my life reading, studying, thinking about the 18th century, about the late, well, the late 17th, which is we like to annex into the 18th century, the birth of the scientific revolution, the glorious revolution, the financial revolution that comes at the end of the 17th century. I was spending a lot of time thinking about the Tudors in the 16th and the early Stuarts of the early 17th century. But there's been a blind spot in my education, and that is the extraordinary experiment with republicanism that England, that Britain saw in the middle of the 17th century. Let's not forget that during the civil wars of the 17th century, King Charles was beheaded the first crowned head of state to go through a legal process and be executed anywhere in the world, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one, but I think it was. And the challenge to replace him with a stable, legitimate republic was a significant one, particularly because Cromwell, the protector who assumed kind of dictatorial power shortly after Charles was killed, launched incredibly ambitious series of reforms, moral reforms and imperial projects in the Western Hemisphere. So all in all, he took on a lot. He took on a lot. And as you'll hear, parts of it didn't go so well. For example, convincing the Brits to behave in a moral fashion. The writing was on the wall there, buddy. I could have told him that. But you can watch this interview with Paul Lay. He's a great friend to the team of History Hit. He's editor of the very brilliant History Today. Uh, He's a fantastic scholar, historian in his own right, and he's written a wonderful book called Providence Lost about the rise and fall of Cromwell's protectorate. We had a really good chat, uh, and I certainly learnt a huge amount, as I did from reading the book, which I did over Christmas. So it was a real treat. You can watch this interview with Paul on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. That's right. We got hundreds of history documentaries up there. You pay a subscription, you go and watch. But if you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, because you're a podcast listener, you will not have to pay a subscription for six whole weeks. It's six weeks free. You can check out the whole thing. You can binge watch the whole site. You don't have to subscribe if you don't want at the end of it. So uh, please go and check that out for free. And in the meantime, have a listen to Paul Lay. Paul, it's a huge honour to have you on the on the podcast because you are in charge of history today. Indeed. And now you're usually in the seat that I'm in, you know. And now you're now you're the historian. You're in the hot seat. I'm very impressed. I don't know how you had time to do it all. But talk to me because uh, let's. I don't want to. I don't want to mention Charles First, Charles Second. We're only going to talk about the Protectorate, right? Yeah. This is a. This is a. Uh, so what is Sir Charles? Is, is it February sixteen forty nine? When's he? When's he? January. January. Thirtieth of January. Okay. Yeah, end of January. So and then to 1660. This is a period of history that I know the least about of any other period of history. Am I typical of British people? And is that a deliberate, is that a conspiracy by the man to stop us learning about when we were a republic? Well, there's no doubt that it is probably, in fact, almost certainly the least known, important, crucial, defining period in British history. Uh, it's of huge resonance that we've seen during the whole Brexit scenario, the kind of issues 
that are raised at this point about the relationship between the constituent nations of Britain, about the relationship between Parliament and its people, about religious fundamentalism, there are all kinds of things going Foreign on. entanglements. Foreign entanglements, the birth of empire. Global Britain. Absolutely, you know, and there's an, an idea too, I think, of English exceptionalism that's there as well. So there's all these things that are obviously, I don't like to do too much relevance, as you know, but there's certainly resonance there. And so, and yet, mysteriously, people know almost nothing about it. And this became apparent uh, because the original idea behind this book uh, was... Uh, based on a series of books about years, 1066, 1485, 1215, uh, because Dan Jones, the historian, had um, written a book uh, for the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, 1215, so around about 2015. And he asked me, would you like to write a book on a particular year? And if so, which year? And I said, well, 1657 would be the one. You know, people say, well, 1657, what happened in 1657? It's the year in which the crown was offered by Parliament to Oliver Cromwell. Seems like a big deal. Which is a big deal, among many other things that happen in that relatively small period. We're talking about you know a decade, essentially. Um, and so I started to write this book. Dan, Dan said, you know, this is good, this is good, let's go. But in writing the book, or beginning to write the book, I realised that the introduction was going to have to be this long because no one knew anything that happened after the execution of the king and the actual book itself is going to be this big. The introduction was going to be very, very long. So I said to the editor there, a person called Richard Milbank, at, at head of Zeus, to say, why don't we just write an accessible narrative history of the protectorate for the, you know, that most elusive of people, the intelligent general reader, you know. Um, and so that's what we did. And in doing so, it was quite timely in a way because much of the resonance that we, we just talked about was there and was becoming more apparent as the months went on and the years went on about writing this book. And as for your question about conspiracy, I don't think there's a conspiracy and I'm not much of a believer in conspiracy, but it's curious as to why it's so little known. People know that a king was killed on in 1649, in January 1649, they know that a king returns in 1660 with Charles II, and they'd almost certainly heard of Oliver Cromwell. But actually what happened during those years is a complete mystery to most people. Yeah, maybe not conspiracy, but is there a, a sort of Whiggish interpretation of history where you go, where this felt like a, a limbless, like a branch on a tree that didn't develop, you know, so you go, you go, absolutist, Charles I, Charles II comes in um, a bit more reticent, his brother gets kicked out. Glorious Revolution, development of constitutional monarchy. So, so that 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 feels like a narrative. And then this this the exper Republican experiment feels like a radical discontinuity, does, which doesn't then well, according to this my conspiracy, doesn't lead on anywhere. Well, it it doesn't, and I think there's also that desire to see Britain as this stable, continuous yeah. uh, nation of well balanced, rather than like revolutionary France or even the United Evolution States, or like that. absolutely, and that's a very Whiggish interpretation. Although, of course, the Whiggish uh, ideas come through the Cromwellian ring rather than through the monarchist one. And um, but it, there does seem to be—I was still struck by the antipathy that's there towards Cromwell, the person, 
is a deeply complex person. I'm by no means a Cromwellian, nor particularly a, a supporter of the Stuarts. I'm fairly ecumenical on this business. And I can see why, for example, Cromwell is a despised figure in Ireland. It's very, very difficult to talk, to have any sensible debate about Cromwell in an Irish context, because there he is as a figure of essentially a national foundation myth. Um, so it's very difficult to do that. Um, but even in this country, and not just among you know, people with the Catholic bent or anything like that, people are very hostile still to him. And that's slightly puzzling, um, because during the 1930s, for example, Cromwell was often regarded uh, or compared to European-style dictators, for example. You know, we always reflect, you know, history is always contemporary history in that sense. Um, but it's very, very difficult to argue that, even if the ambition was there. Um, certainly the means in early modern Europe is just not there at all. OK, well, let's start. So, so we got, so we, on February the 1st, there's no king in England. Uh, there, who's in charge? Well, the army is essentially in charge. And there's a rump parliament, there's a very small parliament, there's probably around about 50 or so active members of that. Um, and the army is essentially in charge. But the most prominent figure, they're not actually the leader of the army, is Cromwell. He is the person who I think has the most loyalty. He has this following. He's a genuine believer in, I think, religious liberty. There is a genuine, to extend beyond the kind of Presbyterian-dominated parliament. Um, he is a genuine believer in liberty. He takes on side people like Baptists. He is himself an independent. He's essentially a congregationalist. And so there's a genuine desire for religious liberty there. And the army, of which Cromwell is not the head, but he's the most influential, powerful, most respected member, is in charge, and it regards itself as a religious force. They refer to themselves as the saints. You know, this is the vanguard of a new Jerusalem, the elect within an elect nation that seeks to transform, just as Israel is the, the, the paragon of the Old Testament, then England will be that in the new. Okay, so two questions. Political complexion, has, has the army extended its uh, influence right across the aisles at this point? Uh, well, it hasn't at this point, but it is about to, because in 1650, uh, Cromwell, along with his allied John Lambert, and some would argue in this particular instance Lambert is the most important figure, wins a crushing victory over the Scots at Dunbar on that most fateful of dates for Cromwellians, the 3rd of September. That's in 1650. And it's very much against the odds that through almost reckless ambition uh, in terms of military tactics, they defeat the Scots, um, surprising them uh, in, in battle. Um, an incredible base, which is regarded by Cromwell, by Lambert, and by the saints of the army as a miracle. It's called the miracle of Dunbar. And this is a sign that God is with these people. They are doing God's work, just as they did in the Civil War against Charles. The providence of God continues, um, just as, and they think in a very Elizabethan worldview, I think, Cromwell and his followers. And what I mean by that, and remember that, so far as we know, the only book 
that Cromwell read outside the Bible, of which he had an intimate knowledge, as did most of um, his contemporaries, was Walter Raleigh's History of the World, which is a kind of manifesto of English Elizabethan providentialism, written, of course, in the wake of the Armada, which again is this great symbol of divine providence. And they went at Dunbar on uh, 3rd of September 1651. This confirms this them as God's elect within an elect nation. And then a year later, they crushed Charles II, who is, has been crowned as Charles II by the Scots, as he comes down to Worcester again on the 3rd of September 1651. And from then on, they have secured their hold on the entire island of Britain and Ireland too. And so there are, there are sporadic places, uh, always the highlands of Scotland, of course, and certainly there's opposition in Ireland, but essentially, so far as rule is there, the military is in charge. And Cromwell, by this point, is by far the most significant figure in, uh, in, in, the, in, in the country. I always find, I mean, that's the first time since Edward I that all the constituent parts of the, of the Isles have been brought together. I find that... By force. By force, yeah, sorry. Uh, and I think that alone is, is worthy of, you know, it's funny that people don't talk about that in the kind of, in, just in the military and political context alone. No, it, it is extraordinary. And, but, but as to why, I've no real idea. I mean, obviously, our, the Irish dimension is, is controversial for obvious reasons, but... There's an unwillingness there, you know, it, within Scotland, I don't really know how it's done in the wider sense. It's not, a, it's not that historians haven't written about this stuff. This is one of the most remarkable things, and I think it's the real motivation behind this book, is that I studied under people like Barry Coward and Michael Hunter and really wonderful historians. But I've always been puzzled by the fact that over all the periods in British history, over, say, the last 40 or 50 years, the best work or certainly among the best work has been done on this period. There are generations of superb scholars who have written on this, and this is a synthesis of their work, essentially. I mean, I, I make no bold uh, original claims for this book. But what I've tried to do is to open a door or a window onto this remarkable work so that people will read Providence Lost and then... Uh, they will seek out the work of the real scholars, the real historians of this period, because there's plenty of accessible work. But I think on the protector itself, I think there are two books for the general reader. One is Barry Coward's textbook on it, which is very much a textbook, very good work, but a textbook. And there's one by uh, Ronald Hutton, uh, which is on the British Republic, which again is a small, almost pamphlet. But there's very little work for the intelligent general reader on this subject. In fact, I think this is the only one. So uh, when I was in Durham Cathedral doing a podcast on the survivors of the Buddhist defeat Dunbar, it was quite interesting because there Durham, <clears throat> when it, because the, the, the church authorities just didn't want to talk about when Durham Cathedral had been deconcentrated, used as a prison. Mm. You can still see where the stains from the urine is on the floor. And so I wonder if it's a little bit like Louis and Charles, the, is it Charles X after the French Revolution, they've ultras, with it, there is an element that just people that hope by not talking about it might go away. But then Charles II quite liked talking about his escape from Worcester. I mean, he, he, was, he wasn't embarrassed. He didn't treat the interregnum of the Republic like something that wasn't to be talked about. No, and there's plenty, as, as you, you'll discover in, in the book when it comes to the end of it, there's plenty of continuity between the figures involved in uh, the Protectorate 
and those who did a deal with, I mean, the most famously, there's General Monk. Well, come to General Monk, absolutely. Of course. And, but there are other people like William Penn, for example, who cut a deal, essentially, with this and, and transfer their allegiances and power and do very well out of it. Okay, so we've got Cromwell is now the overlord of the British Isles, the Isles, Britain and Ireland. Goodness knows, it's difficult to call them anything these days. And he is, what's he do? 651. So what's, so the army's still in charge. What is, what is his plan to match uh, his military pr uh, successes with a kind of lasting constitutional uh, arrangement? Well, uh, the phrase that Cromwell uses again and again is healing and settling. Um, and... What we have to think about this is when he talks about healing and settling, the constitutional reforms, or the constitutional projects, and the religious project of the moral reformation of England are entwined. They can't, you, you simply cannot separate those two things. They are combined. This presents itself as most extreme or most obviously religious, with the nominated assembly, which is the first real parliament that um, Cromwell has. He's not called, it's, he's not protector at this point. There's a nominated assembly of which he's the primus inter pares. And this is the idea not of John Lambert, who's the second in command at this point, but a person called Thomas Harrison, who is a member of a group called the Fifth monarchists. And they believe uh, that there are going to be five monarchies on earth before the millennium appears, before God returns to earth. Those being Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. Rome being both classical Rome and the papacy. And there will be a fifth monarchy. And this, if all goes well, will be in England. And England. So you can see this deeply religious providential thread running throughout this. And so Harrison becomes the kind of ideological figurehead of this assembly of, and it's called nominated because the members of this assembly, the MPs, will be nominated by various churches, or at least that's the plan. In the end, they're not. They're, they're appointed in a, a much more haphazard and one would say more corrupt way than that. Um, but it's modelled on the Jewish Sanhedrin, quite, quite explicitly modelled on, on the uh, Sanhedrin. The fifth monarchists are often represented as dominating this. It's, it's actually not true. It's actually not a bad parliament. It's, it's lampooned in some way because it's known as the bare bones parliament after one of its more um, obscure uh, members who's a city leather trader, I think, called um, Praise God Bare Bones or Praise God Barbon. Uh, which is a very Puritan name. If, uh, I forget the full extent of his actual real name, but it's in the book and that's something to ponder and wonder at. Um, but it's actually a reasonably effective one. But there is obstruction from the more mainstream MPs, the Presbyterian MPs, and it ends, as almost all of Cromwell's parliaments do, by the eviction of MPs by military force and Cromwell will turn up and say oh I didn't realize this was going on and present himself as good there's a wonderful phrase by Blair Worden who's the great historian of this period um, when he says that Cromwell is practiced at not knowing he always seems to be not quite there or just gone 
when a dramatic event happens. And yet one can't help but wonder, uh, with great reason, just what hand he's playing. And there's definitely this kind of elusive figure of Cromwell, this political figure. What goes on in the background is always there. One of the great sources, the great source for Cromwell that we haven't got, we'll never have, are his dialogues with God. And those are the ones that I think there's this constant practice of Cromwell's to go into prayer, to go into retreat and have this one-to-one dialogue with God. It's actually very, very well done in a play by Howard Brenton called 55 Days, uh, which is set during the 55 days before Charles' first execution. And you have these imagined conversations between Cromwell, but he's always searching for the answer to what would God want me to do. And you say we don't have that source. Did he write down transcripts which are now lost, or did we just not have it because it wasn't recorded? Well, no, it was just a private... Right, a private it's conversation just, with God. It's just yeah, in the head. That's right, a shame. Yeah. Okay, so Barebones Parliament's gone. Uh, what's next? Well, as Thomas Harrison recedes into the background again, John Lambert comes to the fore, but not as a military figure this time, although, of course, the army's always there in the background but as a rather original um, political thinker. And he composes uh, the first written constitution in the world, which is called the Instrument of Government, which essentially tries to settle uh, the republic on firm or firmer foundations. So essentially it replaces the old trinity of king, uh, commons and parliament with a sort of kingly figure, or a sovereign, shall we call it, a council and a parliament. And that's the new settlement. Now, who is going to be the king-like figure? The original offer is that it should be Cromwell, that there should be a kind of house of Cromwell. But Cromwell resists this, and instead is offered the title of Lord Protector, which obviously has some... Uh, semblance in uh, English history. There is a tradition of it, but it's, it's essentially as a guardian of a, a future monarch, as you know. Um, but he takes on this title of Lord Protector, uh, which is controversial. Um, and he takes on a mantle of royalty. You know, there's no great ostentation at this point. You know, he goes to uh, the opening of Parliament in Puritan black, uh, although, actually, ironically, black is actually quite expensive. To the, the, the Puritan wear is actually quite expensive, relatively, because black's a difficult colour to achieve at that time. Um, but he takes our kind of mantle of monarchanism, which really upsets his loyal Republican figures, people like Henry Vane, Thomas Hesselrig, and, of course, Milton, who responds and asks questions about, you know, this man who was the greatest among us. You know, we keeping an eye on you and we watching how this unravels. Um, But by this point, Cromwell's in charge. His council, which is often made up of his family members, people like Desborough, uh, people like Lambert, uh, his his sons around, particularly Henry, not Richard, but Henry, uh, Fleetwood. There's this, they're interrelated, they're married together. You have this very, very small elite, uh, Puritan elite, that's gathered around the sources of power 
in Whitehall in Parliament. And um, it's beginning to resemble a kind of Puritan aristocracy is pushing it, but there's no doubt that these are now important intertwined interlocked figures and there's a kind of regime about it but it's on this foundation of the instrument of government so um speaking of aristocracy how's how's, how's uh, the isles how are they being governed in practice i mean are traditional some manorial practices still going on but different people or is there now is there now government state you know state paid, paid for troops in every town and village i mean it's it's early modern britain um the the military Presence. I mean, this is a place that's recovering from civil war, remember. Um, it's had famine, it's had all kinds of stuff, but it's getting towards stability. And I suppose there's, with most people, there's a kind of Hobbesian kind of belief in the strong arm of government. And this is a strong government. It's secure. But who are its agents in the, in the regions? Well, pretty much remains the same groups okay. of people as before. And we'll, we'll come to this in a, in a way. But there's a great deal of continuity because however much uh, they may be against Anglicanism, for example, the Church of England, the prayer book continues to be used in most parishes. People adhere to the old ways, the old Elizabethan settlement, essentially, remains the one in which most people practice on a Sunday, uh, the courts probably work a little bit better because there's a lot of lawyers in Parliament. There is some measure of reform. So actually, in terms of justice, in terms of the daily business of life, very little changes, in England at least. Great landed estates broken up or...? Not, not particularly, no. No, they're not. Um, there is... Uh, there is an, an act of oblivion that takes place of, that, that's dated post Worcester. If there's no resistance there, there's no great problem. There's obviously suspicion of uh, cavaliers. Um, the most uh, fierce, uh, zealous cavaliers will often be abroad. They've gone to France, they've gone to wherever they happen to be, and there's an exiled court of their with Charles, which all takes place after Worcester. There are many. Uh, people escape after the Battle of Worcester in 1651. Um, and there's a network of agents. But there's a lot of passive people. The classic work, I suppose, of the passive cavalier is something like Isaac Newton's The Complete Angler, whereas it becomes a kind of retreat. They can live with this government. They can settle with it. It's not, it's not persecuting them in any way. They're not going to be able to advance themselves. But they can settle back into this kind of, if, if they're wealthy enough, into this kind of rural idyll remembering a merry England before. You're describing my next five years as Brexit <laughs> Brexit plays out and I sit on a riverbank chilling. Yeah, well, yeah, no, absolutely. That, Looking that, forward that, to that, it. That's entirely there. You can become, you know, like, and there's, there's an entire tradition of there, I suppose, like the kind of George Herbert tradition of, of poetry as well that's, that's, that's there. There is a kind of passive resistance, I suppose. But um, there's no great action, particularly at this time, um, against uh, so, so Republican, royalists. So Republican, so it's slight, probably slightly different in Ireland, Scotland, but Republican England, uh, it is. it doesn't feel radically different at the coalface to Stuart England. Well, I think essentially what's happened, and I mean, here's a Brexit parallel. I don't like doing this, but here's one. Basically, when the king is executed, they've made a decisive decision uh, to make um, England a republic. 
but they don't know what to do next. People have spoken. And the next 10 years is essentially a failed Delivery. attempt to discover what to do next and to deliver a settlement that satisfies everyone. And that's the problem. Republic means republic. It does. It does indeed. Um, so Let's we, get the republic done. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get it out of the way and then we can... Anyway. Uh, so, okay, so we got... So they're getting the republic done domestically, but but actually in your book and and from my, my passion as a sort of... Mar like the, my interest in maritime history... Uh, it's it's what happens outside the Isles now as well. I mean, should, is it too simple to see this as as Cromwell gaining control over the Isles and then and then keeping that momentum going, moving into uh, the West the Atlantic and then also into Europe as well? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's too simple to say that. I mean, that's essentially what happens. Uh, you have the stability. Um, you have a very large. Highly trained, highly motivated army. Unprecedented in British history, this army. I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially uh, the beginnings of the British army. I mean, this is this is where you know the Grenadier Guards and the Coldstream Guards. Bit embarrassing. Are they, they, that's awkward. It's awkward. Trigger warning for any Grenadier Guardsmen listening. And of course, the navy is immensely strong, and it really had, doesn't have much to do. Uh, after the Treaty of Westminster, there's peace with the Dutch, who've always been sort of trading threat despite their shared uh, Protestantism um, and there are essentially two major powers in Europe which is France and there is the major global power which is Spain, black Spain as the Puritans regard it as. And so once Britain and Ireland are settled to as much as they can be, there's a desire to use this army and particularly this navy. What do we do? What do we do now? And they look back, as I've already mentioned, on those great tales of Raleigh, of Hawkins, of Drake, these people who went out into the New World and singed the Spaniards' beards. You know, I mean, this is their idea. You know, look what God has given to us so far. God is totally behind us. This is the great opportunity now to take on the Catholic powers of Europe on a global scale. Um, and there's a sort of debate that happens. Uh, should it be France or should it be Spain? But Spain is always going to be the one. Um, Cromwell himself is almost pathologically anti-Spanish, anti-Habsburg. Um, and so there's a desire to go out into the, to have some kind of campaign, some kind of design in the Spanish New World so that this elect nation of the saints takes on the Antichrist in the New World and it's going to be on a global scale. Now, there have been precedents for this. As I say, there's the Elizabethan sea dog tradition. Around about the late 16, sorry, late 1620s into the early 1630s, there's a group of adventurers who are essentially uh, a, a Puritan elite in the city of London around people like Lord St. Seal, John Pym, uh, Lord Brooke, no, notable figures um, who are very annoyed at Charles I's personal rule, which is the 11 years in which Charles rules without Parliament. And they have this providential Puritan worldview, and they want to settle an island called Providence, which they name Providence Island which is just off the coast of Nicaragua. It actually belongs to Colombia now, but it's right in the heart of 
Spain's new world. Um, and it fails. It's a, it's a failure. It's taken back by Spain at the third attempt in 1640, just as the Civil War is taking place. It's never been a happy place. Um, it is, for example, the first place in the British Empire where slaves outnumbered free people. So we're right at the beginning of the English slave trade here. Um, it's not easy to equip in the way that Barbados is, which has also been settled at this point, which is out in the uh, Eastern Caribbean. This is right next to the Spanish uh, fleet, which is there in Hispaniola, which is there in Cuba, um, and is there in, on, obviously on the mainland. And it's a, it's a hell of a deal. There are lots of English traders out there who are happy to deal with the Spanish and the Spanish are happy to deal with them, despite whatever the King of Spain forbids or whatever any regime in Britain uh, looks down upon because money is money. And, you know, uh, these people are more concerned with profit than they are with prophecy or providence. You know, that's, that's just the way they get, they're happy to get their hands dirty. Um, and this fails. But the idea of this taking on the new world remains a strong impulse among a certain type of Puritan. And there's an interesting figure who's the catalyst to all of this, who's a person called Thomas Gage. Um, Thomas Gage is born into a recusant family. Uh, and like many uh, sons of well-to-do recusants, his father wishes him to become a Jesuit priest in Douai. But he doesn't follow that path. Um, against his father's wishes, he goes down to Spain and becomes a Dominican. And in doing so, he eventually ends up in Central America. Um, as a Catholic, he takes on the Spanish name. He's a brilliant linguist, this figure. He says he's going to the Philippines, which is then the capital of, of, of Spain's empire in, in Asia. But he doesn't. He steps off in Central America and becomes a real observer of the indigenous people there, uh, the Pokemon Maya, whose language he speaks. And he writes this up in his travelogues. He becomes one of the first, well, I think the first person to um, describe tamales, for example. He talks about chocolate as a drink and warns people, of, you know, this drink will make you fat speaks these languages. He's, it's an extraordinary journey to the heart of this place. And I think the only non-Hapsburg citizen to be there in the new world like this as, a, as, a, um, as an observer and as a practitioner. There. But eventually, over this long period, doubts set in. He has some kind of religious doubt. He goes back to Spain. He goes back to Britain, England, and then eventually settles there and has some kind of conversion experience to the Church of England. And he actually turns on Catholicism. And he gets into contact with John Thurlow, who is Cromwell's spymaster, and eventually Cromwell himself. And he describes in this remarkable travelogue uh, called The English American, um, this, his experiences there. Um, but he also says, look, the Spaniard is vulnerable there, and I know how we're going to do this. And he suggests an attack on Hispaniola, um, 
which is now Haiti in the Dominican Republic. It's a large island. Um, he says it's vulnerable. Didn't Drake take it himself? You know, he doesn't tell you how long Drake took it for, but he does say, you know, if we're the um, inheritors of this English providential tradition, we've got to go out there. There's another person who also talks about this, a person called Thomas Modiford, who also suggests a project of this type. And um, he is thinking about attacking the mainland there, perhaps the Spanish main around uh, in, in, in what is now Colombia, Panama. Um, but eventually, after a few meetings, and Lambert's against this, Cromwell's for it, speaking crudely, um, they decide to embark on a project which eventually comes to be known as the Western Design, uh, which is to take this very large navy out into there and attack and take Hispaniola, the island of Hispaniola. And how does it go? It doesn't go well. No. It is really the first catastrophe that the regime has faced. And there is a sense in which providence, this providential idea, has really become hubristic. Uh, they don't prepare the fleet well at all. They're, they're warned by several agents who've been out there in the Caribbean, old Caribbean hands, and say, you know, you've got to get the water. They've got to have water. They've got to have resources. They've got to have proper tropical clothing. And this is largely ignored. Um, and it's very, very poorly provisioned, which is not something one expects of uh, the Cromwellian regime so far and the army, which has had very efficient quartermasters for its people. And it attacks uh, Hispaniola and it is defeated very, very easily. The ideas of foraging from the land, for example, which armies are used to in places like Ireland, for example, simply doesn't work on Hispaniola. Uh, they're not used to the kind of tropical rain. They're not used to the scarcity of water. They find out that some of the rivers are uh, um, poisoned by copper. There are all kinds of disasters that go wrong. And um, it fails. There's a second prize they get, which they consider little, a bit of a island. booby prize. It's called Jamaica. Yeah, I heard of it. Which, of course, ends up very well, which is, interestingly enough, the last private possession of the Columbus family in the New World at the time. Uh, and for that reason, it's been rather neglected. The Spanish aren't really that bothered about it. There's a small force there. But the force under uh, William Penn and Robert Venables uh, takes that island. And then Penn races back to England to try and proclaim some kind of good news. Venables follows him. They arrive home, they're put in the tower when news is finally realised what's happened. Um, Venables ends up in pretty much disgrace. Penn, funnily enough, uh, becomes um, a major figure during the Restoration. But um, it's a disaster, and it's the first disaster that they've faced. And Cromwell is there thinking, you know, why has God withdrawn his will? What's gone wrong? And his, his conclusion is that the moral reformation has not been sufficient. Um, there has been rebellions. There's a rebellion um, 
called the Penrodic Rising in the West of the country that's preceded this, uh, which is, we talk about royalist conspiracies quite a lot in, in the book. But this has led to a model of what becomes, uh, the response to this is the model of what becomes the rule of the major generals, which is notorious uh, action, whereby the country is, England and Wales, this is, is divided up into regions on a sort of county basis uh, and handed over to a major general to administrate. Now, one of those things is to uh, is as a response to the royalist uprising, which peters out. It's, it's really nothing at all, but um, the regime becomes concerned, whether rightly or wrongly, about this, and it introduces a decimation tax uh, that, as the name suggests, takes 10% of um, the earnings of property and, and assets of royalists. Um, and this is one of the means of imposing this, is the um, rule of the major generals, is dividing this, who work in alliance or try to work in alliance with the local gentry, the local establishment that we were talking about before, you know, JPs, and Justice of the Peace, various things like that, who some are sympathetic, some are not. And so there's a lot of resentment fostered around this period between local elites and the people imposed upon them who are often criticised as being low-born, and some of them genuinely are quite low-born. One is a thimble maker, for example, who's suddenly you know, running three counties or something, and there's a lot of resentment about that, about breaking the old traditions, which the regime hasn't done up to that point. And there's a lot of resentment about this. But the real thing that, that, that's resented by the wider population is the kind of moral reformation. Um, things like racehorsing and race meetings have always had this kind of cavalier aspect. Is this the bit we have to talk about Christmas? Uh, well, Christmas has long been banned before that. Oh, the, I see. the ban on Christmas goes back to about 1644 or something, I think, uh, and is made official in 1647, as I remember. But they simply don't do anything about it. But Christmas is still practiced widely. Uh, Christ tide, as they call it, to take away the Catholic mass there. But um, this is resented, you know, the, the kind of licensing of pubs, and it's resented by a lot of JPs as well. You know, this brings in income, they don't want to have to process all these various people who aren't really doing anything particularly wrong. And so this, this causes real resentment. So the big, the big enemy is what, gambling, Gambling, fornication, fornication. drinking—you yeah. know the usual stuff. Um, <laughs> although, you know, although you know Cromwell and his and his, but you know they drink, they smoke. Uh, they're, they're not particularly Puritan. They're not the most zealous of Puritans in their kind of social life. They like music, for example. They've even got some erotic art in uh, in, in in their in in uh, Hampton Court and various places. But it's. It's resented in a way. It's it's fairly low-level resentment, but it's lingering there and it's burning away and it's not something that people like. But this is the moral reformation. This is the moral reformation. And there's... The saints come to the fore and there are a few things that happen, you know, that really reveal the fractures of the regime between those who want a kind of old settlement. They can see things getting out of hand. Uh, there's resentment at the role of these major generals in Parliament. Um, there's resentment uh, in the wider population towards this. And there's, 
a demand among some people who we might call, this is being very crude, but we might call the civilian faction among the regime. Some people call them the kinglings. To try and settle the nation on something like the ancient constitution. Because there's great fears after 1657 for Cromwell's life itself. There's an assassination attempt by a person called Marl Syndicum, which is, in a sense, the other gunpowder plot, um, in which it's all there. It's known about by Thurlow, but the pitch and tar is there above Cromwell's chambers. You know, he's, he's going to be killed, and it's discovered, and this is a very, very real plot, and it focuses minds on the succession. You know, if Cromwell goes, all bets are off. Who is going to succeed him? On what basis is there to be a succession? Because what we've got at the moment is something like, they think, as far as the instrument of government goes, a nominated uh, person who's elected. Um, but there's no sense in which this should be done before or should be done after Cromwell's death. It's all very, very uncertain. And there's a great deal of uncertainty and there's a great deal of religious uncertainty. Because at this round about the same time, just before the uh, gunpowder plot, or the syndicate plot, there is a very, very controversial event when a Quaker, and Quakers at this point are not the nice people who hang around in their meeting houses that we know. These people are dangerous, um, free-thinking figures, atheistic considered by some people. Uh, I mean, my God, they even allow women equal rights. You know, this is this, is, this, this advanced kind of fair. And there's a figure called James Naylor, uh, who becomes one of the most prominent figures. The leader, of course, of the Quakers is, is, is George Fox. Um, but they've acquired a terrible reputation among, uh, the, um, among the magistrates and the JPs um, because of their refusal to doff their hats and various other things. Um, but they're strong in the army. They've often been strong in the army. And, and James Naylor himself was a quartermaster in John Lambert's regiment. Um, but what he does is he commits an act of blasphemy by riding through the streets of Bristol in imitation of Christ on a donkey. He's got long, lank hair. And he's arrested for this. It's a quite obscene. There's no doubt that most people see this as blasphemous. He... he he claims he's doing Christ's work, but this is serious blasphemy. And there's been events like this, but this becomes the one that people focus on. And he's eventually tried uh, before Parliament. Parliament decide to um, put him on trial. Now, there's a problem here because the blasphemy law, this is what he's been accused of, has been reformed by the government so that the most you can get is six months imprisonment. I think even third-time offenders only get banishment. And there's people in there, particularly Presbyterians, who want this man killed, executed. Um, but unfortunately, there's no law there. So they have to try him themselves. And it's terrible. Um, lack of due process takes place. And eventually, and, and it shows the divisions between two sides, between those who are Presbyterian and hardline Presbyterians in the, in, in the religious divides, and those who are more for liberty, such as John Lambert. And um, Naylor is eventually, the punishment is settled as a flogging, uh, imprisonment, and he has a bee uh, burnt onto his, 
head. And it's, it's, it's pretty brutal stuff that happens to him, but he's spared um, a death sentence, um, which, which some have been calling for. And so all these crises are happening at the same time. We've got the, the, the major generals have gone for election for the second parliament and they've not found quite the support they expected. You know, they've gone to the country, do you back us or do you not? And they found that they don't really back them quite as much as they thought because they're living in little bubbles among their own in their places and not talking to the people on the ground. So you have that problem. This is compounded by this withdrawal of providence, this doubt and uncertainty that's happened, this religious division that's become apparent in the Naylor trial, and this terrible fear of what will happen when there is no longer a Cromwell. How do we deal with this? And that's, and that's the great problem that um, the regime faces. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Um, I've got a, I've got a, <laughs> we've got to scooch forward. Um, it's, I, could, I could go on to it all day, but uh, what, where does Cromwell, when he does eventually die a, couple, a year or two later... What, does he die quickly or what, what um, arrangements does he make for what should succeed him? Well, he doesn't. I mean, I think this is the problem. He is the civilian faction uh, of whom a person called Rob, Roger Boyle, uh, Lord Broyle, who is from the, uh, the Cork family of Boyles, um, has worked out, uh, or has worked out a kind of constitutional plan to offer 
Cromwell the crown. Uh, and Cromwell does consider this quite strongly. He can see the issue of the problem because the, the succession in itself is, you know, do you have an elected king? Do you have an elected protector? Do you have a hereditary protector or a hereditary king? Now, I think most people, uh, if it's to conform to the ancient constitution, as it's called, would want a hereditary king. And that's the position that uh, what becomes the humble petition and advice offers him. And he does consider it. He goes off again, one of these dialogues with God, and he comes back and he tells them, you know, I cannot build Jericho again. You know, what God has destroyed, I cannot rebuild. So he turns it down. He maintains Lord Protector, but this huge problem remains. And when Cromwell dies on September the 3rd, again, 1658, uh, there is no real settlement as such. There's a kind of mystery about it. It's believed that he nominates um, Richard, is his elder son, who's completely unprepared for this, the most unprepared adult head of state that Britain's ever had. Um, That's going some. That is going some. Now, Henry, who is a much more able figure, I think, and has been running Ireland, um, would be the more obvious person. But then, if you nominate the younger son, that's not going to satisfy those who seek the hereditary uh, principle. There. So there's all kinds of happens going on. We don't know whether Thurlow, the spy master, was told that um, by Cromwell that uh, Richard was his, was yeah, his nominated. Deathbed successor. nominations, you know, never Edward good. The Confessor, Queen no, Anne. There's a lot of sketchy no, kind of no, moving of hands and never good. pointings. Yeah, but whatever. Uh, Richard does become the second Lord Protector. Uh, still all this uncertainty about succession. And in fact, the royalists in exile, as I think, well, the game's up, you know, this is, this is it now. But Richard doesn't really have the loyalty of the army. He doesn't have the army at all. And the army sort of spirals out of control with its demands again. People like Hesselrig and Vane are on the march again. Uh, people like Milton causing trouble. John Lambert, who's been off the scene since uh, the instrument of government disappeared, is suddenly being talked about again. And there's this radical army. And to cut a long story short, eventually Lambert and uh, George Monk, who is the head of the Scottish army, essentially face off. George Monk uh, enables the rump to return, and eventually, eventually it's seen that the only way out of this mess is the return of Charles, who comes. George Monk is this remarkable figure, isn't he? Because he marches south from Scotland. His forbearance has played a decisive role in British history, because he could have, in the kind of post-Alexander the Great, he could have fought his other generals, established his own... Re why did he, why do you think he decided that, that he could, having, putting personal ambition aside and, and effectively facilitating the return of Charles II? I think it was the only option left. Really? Uh, I don't think there was. It was so spiralling out of control. The city of London was in a mess. Money was fleeing. The country was in a, in a bad shape. Charles was there available. And I suppose to a certain extent, through the adoption of a regal manner and regal kind of institution, I mean, if you think about... Um, 
Cromwell's funeral. It's an incredibly ostentatious uh, affair. Um, this idea of royalism probably doesn't seem so bad anymore. Uh, and the vast majority of the population has not been converted away from the prayer book. They're happy with the ancient constitution as long as it can be secured. The one thing that's attractive about Cromwell's regime, that's Oliver Cromwell's regime, is that it's stable. It's strong and the stable yeah. uh, in that Hobbesian sense. And so people can live with that, whatever their own personal predilections may be. Um, but once it's suggested that this settlement is there with Charles II on the old bottom, as they call it, then it no longer seems so repellent. And of course, people cross sides. I mean, obviously, George Monk becomes... You know, Albemarle, he's offered that, yeah, and well. great lands in the, not not just in London but in the north of England and in the United States as well. America is, then is, um, and people like William Penn, who was um, the admiral of, on the Western Design, who's been you know very very close to Cromwell, um, is there with Charles uh, as he returns. So I mean you know. Typical. I mean, this is, this is just part of history. It's a big shift. You know, the, the, the Vicar of Bray scenario is always there. Um, and that's the return. But of course, it isn't settled what happens. People talk about it being a revolution. Uh, but a revolution in what sense that Britain has endured here? Is it a revolution in the sense of like a French revolution or a Russian revolution fracturing? Or is it a wheel coming full circle? Is it that kind of revolution? It's probably a bit of both in a sense, because no king ever really has the kind of power again that Charles I had. But it still takes years to work out um, what is the full settlement. And as you say, in you know, 1688, 1689, 1690, there's elements of that. But it's, uh, it's not settled in 1660, 1661 at all. Yeah, so the, so the Republic, what is, what is your, I mean, you've got into a bit there, but just briefly, what, what is your sense of what the Republic means in British history after that? Is, does the Republic loom very large in the events of the 1690s, in the Hanoverian succession, the early 18th, uh, in the, the increasing importance of, of Parliament, for example, in, in the 18th century? Does, a bit like Magna Carta's relationship with yeah. the birth of Parliament, what, does, what, is the, what is the relationship between Britain becoming a sort of constitutional balanced government and the Republic? Well, I think what never disappears again is the power of Parliament. The Parliament really is this, this important institution. There's been significant um, legal reform there. And I just, there is a faction, well, more than a faction, I suppose, that's there, that is committed to the Crown in Parliament rather than just the Crown. I mean, hence the division ultimately of Whigs and Tories of where they stand. Um, what has happened, I suppose, what eventually happens is that so far as the Whigs are concerned, what becomes the Whigs, there is the idea that a king or a monarch cannot act illegally. And yet there's also, I suppose, on the Tory side, what becomes the Tory side, there is this sense that one cannot act violently against the king. And so you have this strange, what T.S. Eliot calls... Um, the fire and the rose. You have this strange melding. I mean, you might even say, you know, people, people learn to just learn to differ. You know, that, um, 
who knows what, what is the full unravelling there, but it takes a long while uh, for what has happened in uh, the mid-17th century to really work itself out in the system. But what it does mean, of course, and I think there's a strong argument for this, is there's no revolution in the modern sense in Britain. And I don't think we can really call what happened in the mid-17th century revolution. I know people do, uh, but I don't think we can really think of it in the tradition of the French, the Russian, or even the American Revolution. Do you think it's, final question, do you think it's too simplistic to, to look at what's interesting about Britain is that it goes through radical change, social change, political change, without there being this revolutionary event? Do you think it's too simplistic to say that, that, that from Charles II and, and the kind of aristocratic elite, the, the, you know, the aristocrat of Britain, for, for the, the next the 200 years that follow, 300 years, that they remember those memories of that and therefore pragmatism will... There's a pragmatism in that British elite that you don't see amongst the ultras of France, of Prussia, of Russia, who eventually go to the wall. Perhaps. Um, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer that. What is different? I've, I've thought about it a lot. Is There's not a revolutionary tradition in Britain, really particularly, um, because it happened too early. Yeah. And, it's ve- and I think what I've tried to present in this book is one thing above all, is the fact that we are living in the mid-17th century in a deeply religious age. As I said at the beginning, you can't disentangle the religious from the political. It's not they are the one revolution. thing. It is not a post-enlightenment a revolution. That's, it's not at all. And in many ways, that's quite a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, as it works out, it is completely contingent, of course it is, and I don't want to suggest there is such a thing as English providence, but um, it worked out pretty well in the end. Um, mainly because, and this may be one of the reasons why it's relatively ignored, is the fact that it actually had relatively little consequence or appears to do or at least it's difficult to work out what those relevances and resonances are in the modern I always wonder if that you know the House of Lords blinks in 1832 in 1911 I always wonder if that's a sort of you know in a way that the continental counterparts don't seem to be able to and I wonder if that sort of sense of pragmatism might be related to the 17th century could be I'm probably drawing too much it could be there is there is a sense in which you know, in a two-party system, and obviously that may well be breaking up at the moment, whether that's weak Tory, whether that's Tory liberal, whether that's conservative Labour, there are kind of two strands that shift and change. I mean, we might be going into something quite different now. Who knows? But traditionally, it's been that sort of shift of between the two that almost represent opposite poles of human nature, but we all embody in some way. That's a rather providential way of looking at it, but there you go. Uh, that was Paul Lay. Thank you very much. Providence Lost. It's in the title. The Rise and Fall of Cromwell's Protectorate. Good luck with it. Yes, and don't forget, History and, Today as well. No, absolutely. Everyone subscribe to History Today, the best... What, what, do, what do you remind me what you described? The best Oh, it's history, the best serious history magazine in the world. Yeah. Best serious history magazine in the world. <laughs> absolutely. A sister publication of history. I Hi, 
Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History It. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.